in the secular night. In the secular night, you wander around alone in your house. It's 2.30. Everyone has deserted you, or this is your story. You remember it from being 16, when the others were out somewhere having a good time, or so you suspected, and you had to babysit. You took a large scoop of vanilla ice cream and filled up the glass with grape juice and ginger ale and put on Glenn Miller with his big band sound and lit a cigarette and blew the smoke up the chimney and cried for a while because you were not dancing and then danced by yourself, your mouth circled with purple. Now, 40 years later, things have changed and it's baby lima beans. It's necessary to reserve a secret vice. This is what comes from forgetting to eat at the stated meal times. You simmer them carefully, drain, add cream and pepper, and amble up and down the stairs, scooping them up with your fingers right out of the bowl, talking to yourself out loud. You'd be surprised if you got an answer, but that part will come later. There is so much silence between the words you say. You say the sensed absence of God and the sensed presence amount to much the same thing, only in reverse. You say, I have too much white clothing. You start to hum. Several hundred years ago, this could have been mysticism or heresy. It isn't now. Outside, there are sirens. The century grinds on. Put this design in your carpet. The spiritual experience is a modest woman who looks lovingly at only one man. It's a great river where ducks live happily and crows drown. The visible bowl of form contains food that is both nourishing and a source of heartburn. There is an unseen presence we honor that gives the gifts. Your water, we're the millstone. Your wind, we're the dust blown up into shapes. Your spirit, we're the opening and closing of our hands. You're the clarity. We're this language that tries to say it. Your joy, we're all the different kinds of laughing. Any movement of sound that is a profession of faith as the millstone grinding is explaining how it believes in the river. No metaphor can say this, but I can't stop pointing to the beauty. Every moment and place says, put this design in your carpet. Like the shepherd in book two, who wanted to pick the lice off of God's robe and stitch up God's shoes, I want to be in such a passionate adoration that my tent gets pitched against the sky. Let the beloved come and sit like a guard dog in front of the tent. When the ocean surges, 
Don't let me hear it. Let it splash inside my chest. The God who knows, the God who only knows four words. Every child has known God. Not the God of names. Not the God of don'ts. Not the God who ever does anything weird. But the God who only knows four words and keeps repeating them, saying, Come dance with me. Come dance. There once was a young man who fell in love. He was a poor boy from a poor family, and when his father died when he was a teenager, this man went to work as a baker's assistant to support the family. Several years later, when he was 21, he caught a glimpse of a young woman while making a bread delivery. And that glimpse was all he needed to fall in love. He was smitten. She didn't know he existed. And she was from a noble family, so even if she knew he existed, their relationship would not work. It was not a time or a place where noble women <coughs> and baker's assistants get a happily ever after together. This young man had always had a gift for poetry. And he started writing poems about the woman he saw that day. Poems that celebrated his, her beauty and poems that expressed his longing. And he sang the poems as he made his deliveries around town. And they were very good. Other people started singing them too. And they became popular throughout the city. This newfound fame did not satisfy the young man. He wanted his impossible love. There was a legend in the city that if anyone kept vigil, stayed up all night for 40 nights at the tomb of a certain saint, he or she or they would be granted their heart's desire. No one had ever successfully done this, but this young man was lovesick and had no better ideas. He didn't know what else to do. So one night he left work and went to the tomb. He willed himself to stay up all night, putting hope in the legend. And he stayed up all night that night and was awake all night the next night and the next night and the next night. And somehow the story goes, he did not sleep at all for 40 nights. His love was that strong. And when the sun rose on the 40th morning, the angel Gabriel, appeared to the young man and told him to ask for whatever his heart desired. The legend was true and his wish would now be granted. And what happens next changes the story from a run-of-the-mill fairy tale to something else. The young man was stunned by the appearance of the angel. The angel was so much more beautiful, radiant, glorious than anything he had ever seen before including the woman who had inspired this impossible task in the first place. He questioned all of his previous hopes, and his heart's desire shifted. 
He no longer wanted the young woman's love. He said, if God's messenger is so beautiful, how much more beautiful must God be? I want God. And the angel Gabriel directed the young man to a spiritual teacher who would help him know and love God. The young man brushed off and began his studies with that teacher later that day. This is the legend of the spiritual awakening of Shams Din Muhammad, a 14th century Persian mystic and poet who wrote under the pen name Hafez. We've heard a couple of his pieces already today. His words were the chalice lighting and Chris read a poem just a few minutes ago. He writes that we are here to surrender to love and joy. He writes that God is constantly inviting us to dance. Like many in mystical traditions, he spent his life falling in love with God, with the mystery, with the love that holds us all. And now I have a second story of a mystic. This is the story of Jalaluddin Rumi, who lived about a hundred years before Hafez in what is now Turkey. Like Hafez, he was a mystic and a poet and part of the Sufi mystical tradition in Islam. Our intro this month is his words set to music. Chris read one of his poems earlier as well. Rumi's story is also a love story, another love story where the object of affection switches from a person to the divine. Rumi was a religious leader in his community, a role he had inherited from his father. When he was about 37, he met a man who would change his life. Shams of Tabriz was a wandering mystic who came to his town. And Shams did something upon first meeting that altered Rumi's life. The, sto the story varied a lot from which version. So some say he asked a powerful question, question so powerful that Rumi fainted and was reawakened as a new person. Others say he set all of Rumi's books on fire or threw them all in a lake to tell him that that is not where knowledge comes from. Whatever it was, Rumi and Shams became inseparable, tied together in ecstatic friendship and platonic love with one another. Though Rumi married and had children, it was Shams who was the love of his life. And then four years later, Shams disappeared. Rumi and Shams were talking at Rumi's home when Shams was called to the back door by someone. He went out to talk to that someone and was never seen again. He was likely murdered. Overcome with grief, Rumi searched and searched for his beloved Shams. And after a long and unsuccessful search, he realized that he carried a piece of Shams within him. And they were never really separated. They never could be separated. Many of us talk about how we hold the memories of our beloved dead and we live on in other people's hearts after death. But Rumi took this idea even further. He felt Shams as a real presence within him. He even titled one of his poetry collections, The Work of Shams of Tabriz. And over time, Rumi's love for Shams and his love for God blended together. He insisted that the love between him and Shams 
was the same as the love he possessed for God. They only appeared to be separate. They were actually the same love, and the difference between divine love and earthly love is only an illusion. In his poems, one can often not tell what sort of love Rumi is writing about, because Rumi doesn't make any distinction between the earthly and the spiritual, the imminent and the transcendent. For him, it is all one love. So two mystics today, two love stories that start as the love of another person and then transform into the love of God, love of the mystery, the love that is greater than all of us and holds us all. Mysticism is one way of religious knowing, a religious knowing that's rooted in emotion, spirituality, and love, and experience. Fred Campbell served People's Church as interim minister from 1995 and 1997. And during his time here, he led a class on the four faiths, four ways of religious knowing. And one of those ways was mysticism, which he defines like this. Your faith is mysticism if you know about the natural world, but also know there is a presence, force, or power which is within or beyond or unifies all things. People who are mystics anchor the meaning of their living in the spiritual realm, which is supported by the physical, biological, and psychological realms of knowing, but not limited to them. Other good definitions of mysticism include new ways of knowing and loving based on states of awareness in which the holy becomes present in our inner acts, and the realization of a union or unity with or in something that is enormously, if not infinitely, greater than the empirical self. Nearly every religious tradition has a mystical tradition within it. The people who seek to connect to the spiritual realm through their experiences, or in the stories of Hafez and Rumi, orient their spiritual life toward falling in love with the holy. There are mystical elements and mystical traditions in Hinduism, Taoism, Shamanism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and more. And if you look at the texts, the poems usually, produced by the mystics in all of these traditions, that they sound really similar. The efforts people have made to put words to what is seen and felt and sensed echo one another repeat with variations across time and space throughout the human experience. There's a subset of humanity that seems to just be wired this way. I count myself among them. There are many mystics. Nearly half of Americans have some sort of mystical experience, according to surveys. And I would think some might either undercount or overcount, depending on how the survey question is asked. And if you ask about if people have had religious experiences, it goes up even more. And of course, not everyone with a mystical or religious experience is primarily a mystic. Very, very few people use only one form of religious knowing 
to make sense of this beckoning and baffling world. Not all Americans are being, or half of Americans are being visited by angels and given promises and staying up all night or having the love change around from human to divine to human to blurring all together. Mystical experiences don't always involve the spiritual pyrotechnics of some of the stories I've told you already. They often look like that quiet certainty of Rumi realizing he holds pieces of Shams within him. My mystical moments are usually moments of connection with others when I feel a love that I, a larger love that I sometimes call God rejoicing. There was a time at a beach where the sun, which was low in the sky, burst through the clouds and everybody there was lit, almost as though they had halos or auras around them, and I felt a deep assurance that all were well and all were beloved. There was a time when I was with someone who started speaking in tongues. I didn't understand what was happening. I still don't really. But being present to that power and mystery was important and mattered. There are times in my work with all of you, times in in worship when the music is just right and it feels like we're almost singing with one voice, or when someone shares something particularly heartfelt or heartbreaking, and you can feel the whole community breathe in together and offer love to that person. There are smaller moments when someone says the thing that I didn't know I needed to hear, and for that moment I know that he or she or they is the messenger from the mystery that Rumi writes about in the poem that gave this service its title. There are the moments when I feel that we each become love's hand and feet and voice, and that is my mystical experience. Rumi writes, love is the way messengers from the mystery tell us things. Love is the mother, we are her children. She shines inside us, visible, invisible, and as we lose trust or feel it start to grow again. Much of my spiritual practice is simply trying my best to pay attention to the way that love shines within, among, and beyond us, having the presence to see that visible, invisible love. That is what mysticism means to me. It is a professional hazard in my line of work that I sometimes find myself in spaces where people are trying to out-mystic each other. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a part in a conversation like this, but sometimes when religious people gather, someone shares their mystical moment, and then the next person has to share something even more profound or miraculous, and then it just gets really competitive and strange. Perhaps you found yourself in one of these weird contests, or felt outside of one of these weird contests if that is not the way that you are wired. The life of integrity, the life of meaning, is not actually a competition. There are no time clocks or total scores or points for artistic or technical merit. The measure is how it helps you live. 
A mystic rabbi who I admire shared this passage in her memoir. She writes, Spiritual pyrotechnics, these nifty, fantastical tricks and experiences, go down smooth, and for a lot of people, they're valuable as access into a different way of relating to the world. They're a shiny toy that entices us to ask new sorts of questions and lower our guard. It helps us to circle the perimeter of the divine palace, and more important, go looking for the keys to the inner chambers. But these incidents are not the keys themselves, though they often lead us closer to them. That's not a bad thing. But the danger lies in confusing these feel-good episodes with the path itself, as did the priest in a famous Zen story. The founder of our sect, boasted the priest, has such miraculous powers that he held a brush in his hand on one bank of a river, his attendant held up the paper on the other bank, and the teacher wrote the holy name of a Buddha through the air. Can you do such wonderful things? The master, Benkei, replied lightly, That is not the manner of Zen. My miracle is that when I feel hungry, I eat, and when I feel thirsty, I drink. Spiritual pyrotechnics are fun, but at best, focusing only on this kind of encounter leaves us out of whack. At worst, it misses the point entirely. Mysticism matters for those of us who are wired that way. The experiences of love and assurance can inspire us to embody that love in the world. And there are so many others living the life of integrity who are not wired for these sorts of spiritual pyrotechnics. One of the great gifts of this community is that all of us can be here together, supporting one another in the various ways we pursue meaning, love, and joy. I will close today by returning to the words of Hafez that Manny read earlier. This is the full poem that he read a piece of when we lit our chalice. We have not come here to take prisoners, but to surrender ever more deeply to freedom and joy. We have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. Run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run like hell, my dear, from anyone likely to put a sharp knife into the sacred, tender vision of your beautiful heart. We have a duty to befriend those aspects of obedience of our house and shout to our reason, Oh, please, oh, please, come out and play. For we have not come here to take prisoners or to confine our wounded spirits, but to experience ever and ever more deeply our divine courage, freedom, and light. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.